Good afternoon and welcome to Strategies for Enhancing Email Security While Ensuring Deliverability, a health system CIO media in production sponsored by Mimecast. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Julian Mahai, CISO Penn Medicine, University of Pennsylvania Health System, Steve Ramirez, VP and CISO with Renown Health, and Edwin Moreno, Field CTO with Mimecast, and then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. This is a super important topic. Um, Julian, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, happy to, and uh, thanks for having me, Anthony. Um, Penn Medicine, um, or University of Pennsylvania Health System, is a large academic medical health center based in the greater Philadelphia area and southern New Jersey. Um, we have six large hospitals in the area, 100-plus uh, ambulatory practices, and, of course, the School of Medicine, which is one of the leading uh, research and academic facilities in the country. Very good. Thank you, Julian. Steve? Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, Stephen Ramirez and I am with Renown Health. Renown Health is uh, the Reno Tahoe-based health system. We have four hospitals up there. We are the area trauma, have Children's Hospital, Cancer Center, uh, and also an affiliation with UNR that's about in a year of its uh, infancy on that relationship. So excited to be here. Very good, Steve. Thank you. Edwin? Anthony, thanks for having me. And a pleasure just being here with Julian and Stephen. Um, so Edwin Reno and Field CTO over at Mimecast, where we really focus around what we call work protected and really helping protect communication channels, data, and people when it comes to cybersecurity here. Been with the organization for about eight years here, and it's been really interesting to see how email has continued to evolve, seems like on a day-to-day -day basis. So very excited for today's conversation. All right, very good. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Julian, we're going to start with you. This webinar is built around the premise that email is both the most, most important communications medium for health systems, probably all businesses, and the number one threat vector for cyber attacks. Do you agree with that concept, that idea? Yeah, I certainly uh, do. Um, I think at least in numbers, in the uh, number one is the number one threat vector, uh, just the sheer volume, the type of protocols. Uh, so definitely uh, a top focus for us like any other CISO. All right. Very good, Steve. I do agree. And I actually pulled some stats, did my homework for you. So on average, <laughs> we get about 3 million external emails sent to us, and we send about 7.8 million internally. So um, very important for internal communications, even with the uprise of teams. So, Okay, so definitely. Uh, Edwin, your thoughts? I mean, I think the numbers probably shift every day, but still around 90% plus threats still start with email. So I think it is 100% still the number one threat vector, but it is good, and Steve already kind of touched on this a little bit, other communication channels are continuing to expand here. I think COVID, I think definitely um, 
escalated that a bit, right? So organizations where they're using Slack or Teams or just different communication channels, you can still send malicious URLs, you can still send malicious attachments there. So just making sure that that's also a point of focus too. Yeah, and I just uh, posted, I just read an article about uh, something going on with Slack, an attack that's through Slack that has to do with uh, Wikipedia pages, which I posted to my LinkedIn account. I, I sort of posted this article and it was just mind blowing um, what they're coming up with, uh, the bad guys. Um, that was a Slack specific vulnerability. So take a look at that when you get a chance. Um, very good. All right, moving on. Uh, Steve, we're going to start with you on this one. What are you doing to ensure that malicious emails don't get through? We're sort of going to take this in, in two parts. First, we're going to address stopping the malicious emails, and then we're going to talk about letting the good emails through. But I think one of the points that that we're going to make today is that you you have to be very careful about locking thing down things down to the point that things aren't being delivered, legitimate emails aren't being delivered, because that is also a, a very bad place to be. Um, so we'll talk about that. So we've got different types of, of bad emails. You've got emails with bad links or attachments. So download this attachment and open it, and now it's going to release uh, something bad or click on this link and you wind up somewhere bad. So those should be like identifiable somehow. Um, emails that have no bad links or attachments. So just text, text email, but maybe the start of a spear phishing campaign. So perhaps the... The origin, you know, can be an identifier there, where it's coming from. But in and of itself, it's just maybe text. It's just the, the start, the beginning of a, a spear phishing campaign. Um, and talk about the difference between email going into a spam folder versus outright rejection. So the rejection thing is a little scary to, to people trying to do business because if you just uh, if it's not going a spam filter, if there's no opportunity for the recipient to review it and make a determination, if you're making that determination for them and you get it wrong, they never see it, and it's likely that the sender receives no information about it being rejected or undeliverable. It's gone. <laughs> it went into the ether. That's a tough place to be, uh, both for the receiver and the sender. So, uh, Steve, your thoughts. So, yeah, it's very complex as you and just, you know, laid it out. So um, we have to institute a defense in depth, you know, for security in general, but specifically for email. So as you just spoke to, there's a multitude of mechanisms for the bad guys sending it out. QR codes is the new way, too. That's happened in the past few weeks that they're sending that and that's bypassing all these various other filters we are. So just as technologies are being able to adapt to links and attachments, you know, with the safe links um, and other tools of the world, um, which almost everybody uses something on top of Microsoft nowadays, you know, like the Proofpoint co-fences and, and those of the world um, to really just add that second layer of, of filtering onto everything. So um, really using that cohort of Microsoft inherent-based tools, you know, these secondary tools, um, and then kind of having that mix on where you set the threshold at each of those levels. So, you know, we call them known IOCs. So that's really where we can go through and just make a best guess effort. At the Microsoft level, it's one through five. So obviously all security guys would want to put five. But as you said, that'd be a business disruptor on just blocking everything. So that goes into the mix of, you know, safe links, educating your users on what they should be looking for. You know, that annoying barcode at the top of all emails is saying this is, you know, 
from an external sender, you know, hovering over safe links, you know, just the different multitudes of things you have to put into a single email to try to ensure that you're protecting your organization are just very vast. And then the back end pieces that really go behind that from if somebody does click on a malicious email, you know, what's triggered on the back end. I think that's really the first onset of, you know, automation capabilities through SOAR and other technologies. If somebody does click a link, you know, that the lights are flashing in your sock and SIM, et cetera, with that to isolate reset passwords um, and everything to that. It is so complex that I outsource phishing from the end-to-end lifecycle, that if somebody pushes a button, reports it as phishing, that goes to my managed service partner. They do the triage. A lot of that's built-in automation um, and that they actually respond to the end user. So we've seen that as one of the biggest pieces that, you know, everyone say, tell security if you're, you know, you have some bad emails going through, but Again, nobody responds sometimes. So, you know, we make an effort if somebody individually reaches out to the info, information security team, we'll respond to those, but also our managed service partner does that um, to really go through and look at that. So um, it is a very big mix, as you see, um, but it's a continual battle of whack-a-mole. You know, things still get through, even with all those tools and and everything else we put on. So it's just partnering with your business if we're blocking things. You know, there's legacy emails um, and name aliases that you might have had at the early onsets, especially through acquisitions that your organization might have that still have critical stuff through the government, which, you know, is an act of Congress to get something for like um, 304 or any of those, you know, government um, communications that once they have an email, you can never change it. So um, that's really kind of the challenges on what you have to continue to work with and not be disruptive. So, Steve, you mentioned this is setting things to a five. Uh, I think that was a Microsoft specific thing you're yes, talking about. Yes, it's a about. one through five generally. So it's, yeah, not not a lot of stuff because it's a lot to, you know, individually go through. And it's, you know, generally based off of IOCs to um, what what is blocked. So known IOCs generally got blocked by Microsoft or these other, you know, more enhanced levels through these, you know, secondary parties of the world. So. Well, you're saying if you set it to a five, you're going to block legitimate emails as well. So yes. that's not something you want to do. So you have to find generally like a, a three is where we're seeing is like a sweet spot. A four probably blocks too much, but then that gets into setting up a quarantine folder. So then we actually just did a fish for our organization yesterday to send out a, a makeshift what a quarantine folder looks like for people to go click on that as part of our, you know, phishing simulation is just because that sends out as another mechanism to say, okay, we think these meet the thresholds of phishing. Um, spam, et cetera. Here's basically, you know, your laundry list of the day, go through and release anything that you do say. So we try to do a little bit more self-service. So that's our way to your point of not just blocking or us, you know, sending something into that deep, dark hole. Um, that does allow people sometimes to release legitimate phishing emails though. So that's where we also have um, emails set up and oh. mechanisms to then protect against that secondarily. So somebody will wow. pull it out. And we're like, well, that was the tools did it job, but people still. So that's, that's kind of crazy. that mixture. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's blowing my mind. That's blowing my mind that it, it was flagged by the systems. It's in the spam folder. It is a spam email. It's a phishing email. And even though it's sort of been flagged, it still can get released. And you're seeing that. And people still click on the links. But at <laughs> least at that level that they pulled it all the way out, I'm sure that my colleagues, they'll tell you at that point, they're like, well, I pulled it out of my spam and I think it looked a little fishy. And they'll, they basically realize that it, what they just did. So they probably should not have done that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, that's, that's great. Julian, just give me your thoughts wherever you want to jump in here. 
Yeah, no, I, I just want to build a, a little bit more upon what uh, Stephen uh, said, which I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think with email, it's one of those type of attacks with a natural language involved with the links, all of that can change in an infinite way. And the bad guys are just going to work and rework their uh, phishing emails until they pass the email filters. I mean, we just need to be aware that those bad guys, it's easy for them to buy a subscription from a security vendor, and they're going to tweak their malware attack until it makes uh, pass the preventative measure. So um, really the defense in depth um, and the zero trust approach that we all need to have, um, I, I feel it's key. So on one side, uh, probably a big topic, maybe we'll get into later more in depth about really training and preparing the workforce uh, to be your eyes and be able to alert us uh, and be the first to know so we can limit the impact, meaning the cybersecurity. And then on the flip side, look at all the other aspects, assuming that something made it past the email filter. Do you have uh, a uh, advanced endpoint protection on the computer to act as another layer? Do we have a really good secure email gateway? Maybe that uh, can prevent it um, ahead of time. Do you have uh, an ability to contain the threat? Let's say ultimately a computer gets infected. Somebody's computer certainly will get infected. Um, can you limit the impact to that computer? I mean, the whole idea is to buy yourself more time to detect and react. Uh, so a lot more to say there. Um, uh, um, I guess the other thing I wanted to switch a little bit over to the um, uh, usability factor and the friction. Indeed, it's really, really key to not, for us to not block something that might be a critical email. I mean, it could be, gosh, anything I can think from a grant application deadline to something really critical that comes through email. And uh, the challenge, in fact, is some of these services send thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes millions emails or a trade association that can easily be marked as spam by some filters. And that really can lead to a critical impact for someone. So um, really need to be careful with that as well. So a, a big challenge indeed. Yeah, for sure. Edwin, your thoughts? I mean, these two gentlemen have hit most of it, but I think just to kind of add on to both of them, it's the defense and death approach and even looking at simple things like attachments. Most vendors, you can simply block some attachments by file type. So make a decision like, do you ever actually want to allow an executable in your corporate email environment? The answer should probably be no. So even making very binary decisions, I don't even want these file types. But then, you know, allowing things like antivirus, that's perfect for known attacks. But then you probably want to do some zero day sandboxing on top of that. So just making, and that's just an attachment, for example. So making sure that you have different kind of technologies, but that are complementary, that are not overly redundant is vital. I think the data visibility of this part is, is also big, and hopefully we'll get into a lot of automation here. You need not only for stopping these things, but actually sharing the IOCs to your endpoints, to your SIMs, to your source, because no solution by itself will ever be bulletproof. If something makes it even past the Mimecast, I might want to rely on my endpoint to tell me, hey, did you know about this attachment? and actually feed those IOCs to me as well, because that's how we're going to protect moving forward as well. So I think there is this whole kind of community approach that we always need to take in mind. 
Um, and the last thing that I'll say is more around the balance of what do we stop versus what do we deliver. Thanks, Stephen. You mentioned the whole banner, like mark everything as external. A lot of organizations do it. I always refer to it as the boy that cried wolf, though, because you see that in every single, every single message. So there might be an in-between. Maybe you actually do dynamic banners where you only apply banners when certain criteria has been met. That way, maybe the end user will actually not turn a blind eye to it, will actually action off if they don't see those banners every single time. So I think there's a lot that we can do here, but there's actually a lot of simple things that I think you can do as well. So like even starting with what you want to allow and not allow to go through. All right. Very good. Okay. Next question. Uh, we're going to start with Julian on this one. What are you doing around employee education and phishing tests to keep employees from engaging with malicious emails to get through to their inboxes? Do you feel there should be rewards, punishments, or a combination of both for those who fail phishing tests? Oh yeah, that's an uh, that's an interesting question. Um, tackle first the uh, you know the first part. Um, we do, I think, what most everybody else does. We have uh, phishing simulations on a monthly basis. We have um, once per year when it's a cyber awareness month. We do a lot of very focused um, in large numbers kind of training and webinars and going to engage with. Um, uh, with our staff and uh, many, many other things. I think what I would comment here is it's about how you do it. So um, I found over time uh, that it's much more important to do very, very small focused impression for the most impact and retention. I know traditionally you want to give everybody a complex list of everything that they could face. But the reality is that, particularly in an environment such as um, mine, where it's healthcare folks, physicians, clinicians have limited time, they're not technology focused, you know, folks trying to explain to them all the IT and the threats um, are not necessarily going to be most effective, but just telling them, like, not more in a paragraph, here is the current situation uh, that's prevalent that we're observing. Here's what you should do about it and allow them to just without scrolling the email up and down, without having big logos, you know, giving that that impression. I was really thankful to uh, to see a feedback from our business relationship leaders recently say, look, we really love that stuff. It's short. It's to the point. It's a brief snippet. Uh, we learn it. And I, I see it in the numbers as well. I mean, you know, from a phishing campaign. We, in a, in a matter of minutes, somebody reports it, and that gives us such a huge uh, leg. And uh, again, doing this kind of in, impactful communication, I think it's a it's a key part. I'll go into really quickly on the second part of the question. I'm not really big in either generally either rewards or punishment um, as a blanket. I do think at the margin. Um, well, we do something with rewards, like we congratulate folks and with that, that uh, reports or all phishing simulations in a period of time. We thank, uh, we thank them, we give them various tokens of appreciation uh, and many other things like that. But I, I wouldn't go as far as um, something monetary. I don't believe in those things. Um, same with punishment, although um, I think at the corner, we are keeping an eye on um, cases where 
it becomes like egregious somebody that just clicks on everything well that becomes really a big risk for the organization uh, and somewhere in between we do a lot of um, uh, training that's kind of triggered by multiple phishing so i want to be there proactive uh, give them maybe a five minutes you know roll them automatically in a five minutes training or 15 minutes something short targeted trying to bring them uh, up, explain a little bit more. So in a nutshell, those are the big tenants of our program there. So just to follow up, you know, you talk about that someone who can't figure out what not to click on, they present a risk to the organization, could be a significant risk. I mean, can you envision a scenario, and maybe this has happened, where, you know, working with HR, through the different steps, through the different, you know, uh, mistakes, someone would have to be separated from the organization. Yeah, I think that's certainly uh, something extreme, infrequent, and not not something that we want to get to. And I think there's plenty of uh, options in the process mm -hmm. for anybody to um, to learn a little bit, to pay more attention. I mean, really, we're talking about here, Anthony, of case of egregious uh, lack of uh, responsibility, of basic responsibility. I mean, if you have somebody that just clicks on anything that moves, you yeah. kind of wonder how do you have the time to click on everything that moves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it maybe make you concerned about the rest of their uh, job duties, how they're executing <laughs> those. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? No, it definitely does start at training. And, you know, it's about being targeted with the type of phishing and what we've seen is making it real on, you know, annual enrollments, you know, when it's tax season, when it's Halloween, when it's Taylor Swift tickets right now, everybody's, you know, on that, on trying to get NFL tickets. So, you know, trying to keep it real on things that, you know, we know people will click, but the biggest benefit we've seen is once people tick click, especially on these um, phishing exercises is doing real time training then and now versus waiting. So I know, I know previously we used to say, here's, we did a campaign. Here's like the 20, 30 people that clicked on this or more and uh, go through and then see, you know, we need to follow up with training. But now we've seen that there's tool sets that it can be real time. They click on the link and it pops up why you shouldn't have clicked on the link, puts you through a training to try to do that real time training. And we are seeing the most bang for our buck on that, on really repeat phishing um, clickers on that, but also making sure you don't send the same thing out when you're doing org-wide ones, because, you know, there's water cooler talk throughout the organization that, oh, hey, did you see this thing that's coming out? So really breaking it up throughout the organization um, and re really making sure that you do also emphasize the mechanisms that they do report a fish. Because to your point, um, I think Edwin and Julian both touched on, you know, it just takes one person to report that and it's able to do that, you know, back end, pulling it out of all inboxes to really better protect the organization. So again, emphasizing, we know not everybody's going to report it. Not everybody's going to you know, read their email in real time. Um, it takes one person to do the wrong thing and click on it, but it also can take one person to really save the rest of the organization um, associated with that. Um, but also, it's also the mix of also what we spoke to earlier on the banners. We know we don't want it to look like a NASCAR full of sponsors every time you get an email. On you know known sender, we've seen that very successful, and you don't often get emails from Anthony or you know we we really see just having that big annoying banner is helpful because saying that if you see this, that should be the first time that you need to then go through these mechanisms and put that as part of our overall 
fishing training and awareness that we know that people sometimes just get numb to alert fatigues associated with that. But it is an ongoing battle, as we say that, you know, it's always look for look for this. If it's, you know, just a reconnaissance campaign, as Anthony spoke to kind of in the you know, onset of this? Is it people just, you know, asking you hi, or do you want to buy gift cards? Is it, you know, people trying to see who they can get to respond to that? Is it then people sending links or attachments and associated saying that there's different use cases and scenarios as part of that training that we go through? And then now QR codes, because again, this is the way that the threat actors can again, circumvent all of this stuff we have just talked about. And then our um, security partners then have to, you know, adjust to do that. That's where I can see AI and other pieces really helping to adapt to these new um, tactics that they're doing, because obviously it's successful and that's where they're well-funded from, you know, R&D perspective. Um, but again, saying that we're never going to send you QR codes. You shouldn't be scanning that to do anything because that's a way for them to take over your phone, you know, starting to look at MFA takeover and and whatnot. So it's just continual um, game of whack-a-mole on that. So, um, and then going down to the reward and punishment side, I think it's good to do a mix reward as in cyber awareness month to really get people engaged. So incentivize versus reward to doing the right thing. Um, I'm all for incentivizing people to do that, but punishments that really goes into phishing compliance too. You really have to have long-term data to start to drill into this. Um, really the best I've ever seen was my buddy at LifePoint Health to have individual drill down by um, each site um, and each person that's clicked over, you know, like three and five years, they homegrown, built something in ten, um, their analytic tool. Um, but again, just based on the risks of the organization, I think there's other ways you can do before you terminate somebody. Like we've talked about like for a long time, to, like our nursing staff really need to receive external emails. So is there different email groups we can look at that they're more, you know, should be internal communications. Or if you have these habitual clickers, Instead of terminating them, you know, putting them through some, you know, security boot camp, but also just taking away email privileges or limiting email privileges um, that we saw in our recent phishing campaign as well that was hot off our press that we had 78% of our people that did click were from their iPhones. So we're seeing that people are running between meetings, being quick, especially our remote workers um, that will click or see this stuff on the phone, which they most of the time wouldn't do if it was on their, you know, desktop or something they're used to looking at all these other controls. So um, people looking at, you know, on their Apple watches, et cetera, we just have to look at these other devices too and how people train their brains of what they're used to seeing it on where they see these various emails. So you just have to get creative how you do that and work with HR if you are going to do that. I've had some says so friends that it's three strikes and you're out. I think one of them was a guest on your show too, Anthony, for Phil Alexander. He was one of the mm. most hardcore fishing guys I've ever met. So um, that, yeah, it's really based on how HR, how serious they take it. Because this is information security professionals, you know, that we're just one piece of the pie and working with compliance, privacy, and then the legal and HR. Because that's really a sanctions policy that um, they would then enforce based off of data we give them. So. Steve, very interesting stuff, especially about the sort of the form factors and how that might affect, you know, you, you've got, you think you've got these banners because you're imagining a desktop, right? So you think, okay, the person sees it, this is what they're going to see. And then you realize, oh, look at all these numbers from phones and Apple watches. Well, they don't see all this stuff, right? What are they seeing? What are they visually seeing? So it's very interesting how you get a customized to so the form factor. Edwin, let me bring you in here, give you an opportunity to weigh in. What are your thoughts on what you've heard? Organizations that I've seen do this well, there's kind of two components that I feel like most of them have in common. 
how do we make phishing not a corporate problem, but how do we make it a personal issue? Because it's not a corporate problem, right? This can happen in your day-to-day life. This can happen in your own Gmail or your Hotmail, right? Next thing you know, you might be trying to buy a house and you set money to the wrong person. Like this can affect your personal life. So making it less about, honestly, the company, but more around if they do these things, if they're staying on top of their trainings for their own benefit, this is why they should be doing this. That tends to stick a little bit more often. And I think also adapting to the culture of the organization as well, I think is critical. A, understanding the culture that you're in, but also understanding that, especially in healthcare, there's different kind of client groups that you all work with, right? You're probably going to treat the doctors maybe a little bit different than some of the rest staff. So that might be the same when it comes to training as well. How you train them, how you engage with them. Um, it shouldn't be a one size fits all. Like I honestly think of things like manufacturing as another vertical here. People that are going to be in the corporate office versus the people that are on the actual factory work, they're going to be trained a little bit differently. And even transitioning to, hey, this isn't as much about phishing, but it's around safety. They know that word. That's word that they have to keep up with on a day-to-day basis. How do we use the words and terminologies that actually align to them? We'll just make this stickier. Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought your point about approaching this with your employees as if we're we're going to train you around phishing. And yeah, we're coming at this from a workplace point of view, but we're helping you as an individual in your personal life, in everything. You need to get your arms around this. We see you making mistakes here. But by helping you here, we're going to help you trust us. We're going to help you before you get into trouble in a lot of other areas. That's an interesting way to frame it up. Yeah. It's always going to be a little self-serving. We're doing it to protect the organization, right? Yeah. But if you can also get them to buy in on that whole personal factor, I think they're more willing to engage there. Well, I think um, it makes sense. I think yeah. it, it's, it, it makes sense. It's not just we're, we're, we're putting this angle on it and it doesn't make sense. It does make sense. It will help them. And there was one other thing that Steven said, where when it comes to punishment, it doesn't have to be you're fired, by the way. Right. You could lose privileges. So for example, I might turn your URL scan into a way much more aggressive setting. In that case, Steven, a five instead of a one, right? There might be more false positives. I might block it, actually go to some web- websites that you actually want to go to that aren't malicious. I don't care. Truthfully, you've proven to me that you click on everything anyways. So maybe I'm not going to 100% remove all your access, but I'm going to start dialing the knob a little bit as far as what you can and can't access. That's so interesting, Edwin, Steve. That's an interesting approach, right? You know, listen, you're going to have to live in your spam folder because you brought this on yourself. So everything's going in there or a lot more stuff's going to be going in there. So maybe this is a way that we'll get you to take this more seriously. But then to your point before, you could still release something out of spam that shouldn't be released. So your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, we um, we get alerts. It's very laborious that if somebody does pull it out, um, that is triaged by our security team to make sure that if it is something they pulled out and it is malicious, we make sure to block it. So it's just Mm -hmm. going back that full circle of life if they do do that. So at least it is a way for us to keep it out of line of sight and just educating people that it's if it's in this folder and you see it and it shouldn't be there, you can release it. We can work with us to mark it as a safe sender, but don't just pull something out because it's in there unless it's, you know, legitimate. So that's a whole nother secondary part to training people on why we're putting these different safeguards in separate from their primary primary inbox. So almost like we're quarantining it. We're like, remember during COVID, guys? Let's put it into ways that you remember. We're quarantining this because yeah. it might be sick. You're going to go through and do the temperature checks and all these other screening mechanisms. So making it real to them before right. you bring it back into Gen Pop. So. Right. 
All right, very good. Um Julian, let's uh let's start with you. Um what are you doing to ensure that legitimate emails don't get caught in spam filters? As spam filters tighten, do employees need to be trained to check their spam filters? This is kind of important because I think for a lot of people, a junk or spam folder, like they're never looking at it. They're not thinking about it. They're assuming everything's being done properly. And uh, that's just a place that they probably have, you know, three to 500 messages. And, you know, I got nothing to do with that. Um, which is a problem if you were trying to calibrate and you're saying, all right, let's let's be a little high here to get a lot of bad stuff out. People are going to have to get in the practice of checking these things. You want them in the practice. I, mean, I think, Steve, you said you send out a digest twice a day, which is interesting, of things that are caught in spam. That's proactive. If you're not doing that, you have to convince people that, hey, you need to look in there. You can't just pretend that doesn't exist. Um and how easy, you know, you mentioned whitelisting, how easy or should it be for employees to have a legitimate email or sender that has been classified as spam whitelisted? For example, is it one click or do they have to contact IT? So I'm going through my spam filter. Can I just click on it and I'm done? Meaning that email's now in my inbox and that sender is not going to have a problem anymore. Or is it more involved in that, which I think could be a bit of a problem, although security might want to it to be more than that. So, Julian, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a this is a complex topic, um, and I think part of it is uh, we we're talking about spam filters being too tight. Um, that that can be a really big dissatisfactor for for folks um, missing something that's critical to them to their career. We definitely don't want to be there. Um, I think the other aspect, as I mentioned earlier, is that the big guy will keep changing the email fish until it gets to the inbox. So I feel like being overly tight with your filters is not going to yield a, a lot of benefit at the edge. Um, I, I think just continuing to do that aggressive training, if you will, the right type of training is the key there. Um, I do think for sure that emails that are clearly bad don't even deliver it. Uh, and for the rest, uh, not just a digest, but giving the staff options. I mean, digest could be a default way if they prefer to get delivered in the spam. You just have to uh, adapt to that. As far as from a communication perspective, I think this is critical. Uh, in especially with non-technical folks, which are the majority in our industry, nurses, doctors, physicians, others, um, just to explain that there are inherent um, weaknesses uh, in the whole email ecosystem. And there is just no way for any system, even AI ML based, to be able to prevent or make the right decisions all the time. Um, but, um, uh, and at the other end, you have to constantly explain the potential impact that one failure can lead to a, to a big impact for the organization. So putting those two out there with the appropriate training gives you a quick reaction. I think it's the the optimal way to deal with uh, with this challenge. Um, and I think the, the other piece, you've got to make it easy for folks to interact. So if... Um, 
if they need to uh, get to something any time of the day to help this get to your messaging team uh, fall into some preset uh, type of workflow and allow them to get the email that they need um, which may be time critical i think that's uh, that's something that we need to be uh, accommodative to great great points i uh, especially like your point about you know, framing this up for your employees and the workforce as this is not going to be perfect, guys, right? It's not going to be perfect. You're not going to get only legitimate emails and you'll get every legitimate email and we're never going to have an issue. So that's just the misconception of the problem or the issue, right? You have to understand this is not perfect. Um, Edwin, let me bring you in here. What are What are your thoughts? I think having the ability to treat detections a little bit different. So by that, I mean things that are obvious, obvious viruses, obvious true phishing attacks, stuff like that should either be blocked outright or worst case scenario, it's an administrator quarantine, never makes it to the end user, right? So I think being clear on what you define that should go down the end user, because the end user should really be dealing at this point, spam and gray mail. Those are the ones that are very hard to make some decisions because someone's junk is someone else's gold, right? So I think, A, don't treat all emails the same, making sure that you have different kind of cues, not just end user cues, but administrator cues. Um, I've seen a lot of people take the crawl, walk, run kind of approach. Digest set is probably the easiest thing any organization can do. You don't even have to give them the ability to release or even reject that email. They can simply just see what's in their queue. It just starts to gain a visibility then you can actually start to enable actions. I actually want to get to this email. The next step is probably more of a quarantine that's always online. A quarantine, whether it's a web portal, it's a plugin or whatever it is. But I think little by little, you kind of start to adjust that because if you give them too much on day one, they're gonna complain, they have no idea how to leverage this, right? Email's so critical, but they're so used to their own ways here. We, there's a balance. Like how do we make sure we're giving them the protection, but without 100% changing their workflows? Because what healthcare does on a day-to-day basis is saving lives. Like we can't get in the way of that. It's such a good point. Steve, anything you want to jump in there? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as you spoke to, we've also trained our users not only on this digest that goes out um, daily. We also taught people and kind of trained them on our policy and our approach to marking things as individually safe. It might be something or a user that you personally need or your department might need. But unless it globally meets the threshold, and we're saying over 50 people in the organization need to do this, we're not going to whitelist it globally. So it's also having those discussions with leadership to say that, guys, here's kind of why we're putting these different checks and balances in. And we enable self-service. We also have this digest and just a reminder of this isn't this to reach out to IT um, if you have any issues. Um, because again, it can get into, oh, we need to whitelist this just because it's going to stop everything. We're like, no, it's not. It's just something that, you know, individually you guys use. So that's something that we're also working with supply chain on, that it all starts with vendor partners you're doing business with. So making sure that you do have a safe vendor list, that's something that we're looking at. It's, you know, almost more work than good we're going to get out of it, but it's going into asset management, third-party risk, all of that to really look at who our vendors are, who we should be doing business with to make sure those emails um, have that clean flight trail to come in. But also we've seen a lot of our vendor partners that aren't practicing a lot of what we're preaching right here Mm -hmm. that have had compromised emails that'll send our supply chain to, you know, make sure you change this um, 
payment information to pay us over here. So it's that continual, we, you know, we're doing this really good training our users here. And then you have a vendor partner um, that goes through and you think it's a legitimate email and there's no way to really protect against those kinds of instances. So, um, but it really is just education, really highlighting and making the ease of use um, for documentation, um, making sure that you go out to the various leaders to say if there's emails you should be getting. Um, you work with us, we work with supply chain or the signing of a new contract, make sure they call you. So it's also that relationship. If things aren't coming through, that's on their duty to let us know, um, vice versa. We've worked with other IT teams that kind of work on those TLS trusts and other pieces with, mm -hmm. with them and DMARC and all that, you know, other more sophisticated backend pieces. So um, it's a continual thing, but, you know, really to answer that question, it's really just education um, and then making it more self-service where we can and then putting those safeguards for human error in place. Can I add one thing Stephen said that's so, that's so key here? Back to the allow us that should almost be your last resort, like, because you're basically opening the door at that point. If you do things like allow us, make sure that you put in the notes, you're putting in the change control ticket, the data when you did it, you should always revisit that. Allow us should never be a set it and forget it thing. And the amount of organizations that do is insane. So even when you do allow us, mm -hmm. set, set a note a month later, two months later, is that something I should still be allowing? Just don't leave it out there. This is such a big issue, and I really am surprised that we don't see more out there, more discussion about this. It is so huge. The disruption to business, and I think of, of the situation where you have a, a sender who sent something, um, and when they don't hear back, they assume there is an assumption that a legitimate email sent will be received. Right. So there's that assumption on the part of the sender. When that is not done, the sender assumes they're being ignored. So if that email was not received, it either was rejected or is in spam, wasn't reviewed properly. Who this spins itself out in bad ways from a business point of view, from a care point of view. Uh, you don't know. You're never told. The person never you have to assume. You say, Do I follow up? No. Do I follow up? Yes or no. And if I follow up through the same method, it may go in the same black hole. So then you think, what do I do? I don't want to annoy this person, but I want to know if they... Anyway, I've been down this road um, on, on our end as a business, and I've had to work through this. And it's a very, very unpleasant place to be when you are having issues about with your email deliverability and you are winding up in spam folders. You don't know where you are. So uh, it is it is a huge issue. And it's, I was going to add, Go ahead, please. I was going to add to that. The biggest thing that I know that both Edwin and Julian would agree to is marketing is the biggest uh, challenge sometimes on they spoof stuff to send internally for, you know, benefits for, you know, different marketing things that generally they send that through a third party that then, you know, goes back through. So basically inherently breaking a lot of these controls from spoofing and other pieces that we put in that sometimes go into spam go into junk and go into these just because of the nature that they want to send out blast emails. Like most organizations, us being one of those, we don't allow for um, emails over 500 to come in because that really limits, you know, spear phishing and all of that. So that's where um, you have to work and sometimes, you know, get really nimble on how you work with internal ways that you're circumventing 
practices you have in place to support marketing, to support, um, you know, like the survey monkeys, the male chimps of the world. So just that too, to add into the mix of complexity that we have to deal with, that we're um, almost setting up ourselves for, um, we do this and then have to take three steps back to allow our marketing teams to send stuff. So. Right. Are you saying because they're they're using some third-party sending services that you have not sort of green-lighted and therefore all that stuff's going to go into spam? Even if you do, like the MailChimps and them of the world, since they're spoofing, say, Renown.org, uh-huh. uh-huh. um, or our various organizations, we put in safeguards that do block that or send it to spam or make the user think it's phishing because they're saying it says Renown, but then it says, you know, marketing at MailChimp underscore Renown. So it's like a lot of things right. that kind of trick our end users on that. So, so just you another have thing to, that we've been you have to make sure that you've gotten the word out to marketing and whoever else that hey, if you're going to use some sort of third party to send emails to our users, we're going to have to discuss this and make sure this is thought out and because otherwise your emails are not coming through. Right? And tell us before you do it. Correct. Right. So that's another right. thing. So internal just on key stakeholders for internal communications that kind of speak to these elements that we we just discussed. That this works is where well. DMARC, SPF, DCAM, all that stuff just comes into play at this point. So it's just having visibility of who actually sends on behalf of your brand and your domains is half the issue. Because sometimes you don't even, because they're not coming from your environment, actually. So they could not be delivered to your own internal environment, but they might not even be delivered to the customers that you're actually looking to send these emails to. So making sure that you're following best practices, it's marketing emails. There's still best practices to follow here, though. Right. And, and Edwin, if, Let's say you've you've sort of tightened everything up internally and you tell your constituents, including marketing, hey, we've got all these these stipulations in place, all these safeguards in place. So if you're going to use a third party to send an email to our employees, we need to talk about it. We need to know about it and we'll see what we can do. It's very possible they, they get that message six months from now. They forget. They contract with some third. They sign up for something and some service and they send it, they're not coming through. They're not getting through. Those emails are not getting through. So it's continuous. They have to remember, right? They have to remember, but this is also where you can rely on protocols like DMARC because if you're failing, well, you're, you're probably not going to know yourself, but a customer that you're dealing with would send you that report says, hey, did you know you're failing because of all these reasons here? Something could be legitimate in there, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be visibility that I think through IT administrators we can get. But ideally, you're working with your partnerships, you're working with these other departments, so you're not reacting. They're bringing you into the loop when they're actually doing these things. Julian, what are your thoughts about who who you need? To, who do you try and work with on this email stuff? Who do you need to talk to? What other executives to as you go through this? Yeah, I mean, I think a different part of the, the challenge is uh, to ensure you have the, the you know, cybersecurity and email messaging team have the right support, a good level of support from executives across the organization. I think you can easily get into a situation where um, if the challenges or the limitations, I should say, of the email and email protocols that were invented decades ago before cyber was even an issue, um, they're inherently limited. and if you get to a point the folks don't understand and there's a constant escalation to either the email teams um, or the cyber team, it just becomes a frustration. So I think critical being in front of those, particularly non-technical, like clinical leaders, nursing leaders, others, explain that 
um, the impact of a successful attack of a threat that comes through email, uh, communicating and explaining why uh, cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility. Uh, like in real life, uh, I'm telling them that um, would you expect that a police or all the other government agency can prevent all crime and you'd let your jewelry in the window and uh, leave your door open because there's somebody else's responsibility and they are accountable for it. Um, and then lastly, with once you tell them the why and the impact, I think you get that level of support. You already explain them the limitation. Hey, you can't be perfect. We'll work with you there to address it. I think that changes the dynamic and the engagement becomes more positive um, engaged and supported from all sides. And that's what leads to that right outcome that I mentioned there where the mm. population engaged gives us the that uh, intelligence really quickly and allows us to remove whole campaigns before they affect the organization. You know, uh, your comparison to sort of law enforcement and the individual's responsibility, you don't just leave your door open and your windows open and say, hey, well, the cops are out there. It's their responsibility to make sure no one comes in. That's an excellent, excellent analogy. Um, Because, yeah, the the feeling could be, hey, this is Julian's responsibility. I'm going to click on whatever the hell I want. And uh, I don't have to worry about it. It's his job to make sure nothing bad gets through. So it's an excellent point. all right, let's see where we are here. Let's do a, a ask a co-panelist. Um, Edwin, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question. Oof, tough one. Um, gentlemen, we haven't touched much on like threat intelligence, but how important is threat intelligence in terms of email threats, email visibility, forensics? And what do you do with that kind of stuff, right? Because I think there's always the world of too much intelligence, too much information becomes white noise. What's the right amount? And yeah, and I guess what do you do with that? I guess Julian, you can start. Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I can start. Listen, I think it's just critical, uh, especially with email, and um, and I think it's a great opportunity, especially if you're working with great partners in this area, because a campaign uh, typically doesn't start with you. I mean, the the chance is so so small, right? It could, but it's so small, and having that intelligence. From a global firm or for to channels where somebody I don't know, in Asia has seen a certain type of uh, indicator, and that makes it to our preventative uh, uh, systems quickly and keeps us safe from that going forward. I think the key, as I mentioned before, to me it's all about the time. How can you compress the time? And threat intel is critical. Steve. And no, I couldn't agree more. It's information sharing too. HISAC's been instrumental on Intel that we get just on what other healthcare organizations are doing, but also part of why I moved to a managed phishing model to that so that they're getting a lot of these, this intelligence and baking that into stuff in real time for that tuning, et cetera, because it's a continual game of cat and mouse. Like you said, they'll just use a new email, create a new domain. So it's, you know, you know, ever, ever challenging on that. By the time it hits a news article, it's probably too late. Yes. All right, very good. I think we got time for another one. So, uh, Steve, let me give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question. So what is the most... So I guess from training and awareness, what? how would you guys recommend um, or have any great stories on how... You, success stories, I should say, for um, 
training your end users on what to look for. Uh, Edwin, you got some thoughts there? Uh, I was about to give Julian the mic here. Um, no, I think it. I think it becomes with so for us, it's a lot of just known identifiers, right? Like display names. I think in going back to mobile phones, there's a reason why malicious actors use display name spoofing. Because when you look at your mobile phones, what happens often? We hide the email address. We just show you the name. So even simple things like, hey, click on that little arrow, expand, and actually show you what the full email address is. Don't just rely on the fact that it says Stephen's name or says Julian's name. So there's really like simple things we can do here. I think someone said it earlier, but quick engagement, small videos, things that are like, whether it's humor-based or just something that they're going to follow and actually listen to. Because if it's going to be your training that's once a year, this whole essay that they have to do, no one's going to do it or they're going to remember it. So I think just starting simple, starting small, but keeping it in front of their faces and not waiting until that next fishing simulation for them to do an action. There's recommendations that we can offer right away. Let's hit them at the point in time where they just failed a fishing test. Very good, Julian. Yeah, I was just going to say to me, the most important thing is to not forget about the channels that different types of group in your organization really read, respond to. I mean, the, the reality is we uh, in in IT and cyber, we or any other knowledge worker, we, we work by email sometimes. That's our workflow. But for many, that's not the case. They're on the floor, maybe in the manufacturing equally so. So you got to find the right channel, be it a daily huddle. Somebody can be there and just, you know, for five minutes, uh, bottom line up front. This is what uh, we're seeing. This is the why. This is what you'd like to do. Um, sometimes they we just delete or ignore the mail. I mean, particularly nurses or some other busy, uh, busy individuals. So, yeah, again, you got to find the right channels. I'll leave it to that. You know, All right, very good. Oh, go ahead. Somebody wants I was going to say, I agree. That's the best. I think Julian brought up a very important piece for healthcare. A lot of people don't read emails, especially nurses. So that's yep. our best, one of our best defenses. So, yep. No, it's true. It's true. Uh, for me uh, and a lot of people, email is the lifeblood of your business and your work. And it's it's an integral part of your being. For other people, it is not. It is just not part of their flow and my wife's a nurse practitioner and she has a different approach to email the different way she engages with email which is not as intense as my engagement um all right we have time for a quick uh final thought um so i'll frame it up this way uh steve we'll go first to you your best piece of advice for someone dealing with these issues at a comparable sized organization to yours as edwin said uh, you know, I think doing doing the basics and doing the basics well, it's so complex as you hear about so many moving pieces on internal sending from what marketing and communication need to send versus external sending versus, you know, the device you have to secure if they do click it, you know, to the intakes, the view, scan, et cetera, that it is just put a plan together. No, you're not going to solve it all overnight. And then even if you do have a plan, you've got to make sure it it's flexible because things are going to change overnight with like the QR code. So this is an ever changing, the most effective tactic for threat actors to get in. So this is, it works for them. So just be adaptive in what you do and focus on the basics. Excellent. Julian. Um, I, I'd say communicate at all levels. Um, why this is important. Um, communicate um, through the right channels. 
And then always take a balanced approach at decision-making, having the practical mindset in mind. This is just too too important to make um, a, a abrupt or hard decision. And, and again, let them know that the, the limits of email in a way that's uh, asking for uh, or making an, uh, not, not an excuse, but uh, letting them know that the system is not perfect ahead of time. Perfect. Edwin, we'll give you the last word. I'll take it from a technology vendor perspective. Um, first and foremost, make sure that you're getting the most out of what solution that you have. So if your vendor offers things like free health checks or system reviews, I bet you there's been new features that have been rolled out that you might not even know of yet. So the solutions and answers might already be with what you have. You, should, you just don't know. Keep your vendors honest. I think the years of, hey, it's a th- email security, it's a three-year project. Every three years, we'll raise a new vendor. I don't think so. I think it's probably an annual thing these days. There's so many vendors in the space and I think it's everyone and it's a healthy competition, but people are trying to. Yep, I think uh, Edwin froze up there. Steve, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, I think Edwin froze up there. So. Uh, that was the last word anyway. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it here. If Edwin comes back on, we'll we'll finish with his thought. But regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. And you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. So um, Edwin's back. Edwin, you're back. Of course, but I'm All like right. the most important thing, and then I, mean, it was I just your, freeze. Your brilliant final thought. Um, so I think you froze up again. All right, Edwin, we'll we'll have to get you to, uh, <laughs> to to email us about that. There you are. You're back. We're good. We're good. Okay. All right. So. As I mentioned, you can go to our website and register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Julian Mahai, Steve Ramirez, and Edwin Moreno. I want to thank Mimecast for sponsoring and making the event possible. And I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Matter, matter.